Hey there, and welcome to Upfront, a podcast that features conversations with Connecticut-based top performers who represent the very best in their field and how they are making an impact in their industry and here at home in Connecticut. Thanks for listening. music. It brings people together, makes us feel happy, it can make us feel sad, and it has the power to heal. More importantly, music brings people together and brings joy into our lives. It's something we can all relate to. Now, if you are from Connecticut and have gone to a concert in the last 40 years or so here, then you've been to a show that Jim Coplick has put on. Whether it's a show at the Xfinity Theater in Hartford or Mohegan Sun Arena, or the Toyota Oakdale Theater, or the new Hartford Healthcare Amphitheater in Bridgeport, chances are you've been there singing your heart out or dancing like there's no tomorrow. Jim Coplick is the president of Connecticut and the upstate New York region for Live Nation. His story is the thing that dreams are made of. It's about following your passion, and in this case, Jim's passion is music. And that passion turned into a business, a live music business that has produced thousands of concerts which have included everyone from Lady Gaga, The Rolling Stones, Fleetwood Mac, Paul McCartney, and Frank Sinatra right down to his first booking of Steppenwolf, to name a few. Make no mistake, music is a business and it's hard work. We dive into that and talk about the hard lessons learned, the triumphs, the failures, and the challenges from the past, and of course today. So let's get into a little bit of Connecticut rock and roll history with Jim Coplick on Upfront. Jim Coplick, welcome to Upfront. Nice to be here. Okay, so where are you physically at this moment in time? <laughs> I'm at the uh, Harvard Healthcare Amphitheater in Bridgeport in the conference room uh, between shows. We have a show tomorrow night and we had a show last week, so it's closest to my home in Stanford, so I come up here often. Okay. New venue here in Connecticut. Those are um, some exciting times. We'll, uh, we'll definitely talk more about that. But I want to go back um, in time. We'll rewind the time machine. Um, where did you grow up? Where were you like born and where did you grow up as a kid? I grew up in New Rochelle, New York, Westchester County. Okay. And what would you say life was like growing up there? I grew up in a, what I would consider uh, an upper-middle-class neighborhood. Um, uh, you know, I went to grade school, uh, and then I went to uh, public school all the way through, right through New Rochelle High School. Um, and uh, uh, I, uh, I think it was a fairly, it was a wonderful, my father was a dentist, uh, uh, so I had a nice upbringing. I never really, uh, uh, you know, I'm not one of those guys that went from, Rags to riches or anything like that. I, I was lucky right from the start. Any childhood aspirations? Did you want to be a dentist like your dad, or what, what did you want to do, quote unquote, when you grew up? <laughs> I wanted to be a dentist like my dad. Yeah. Um, he uh, had an office on Park Avenue. He made a very nice living. I wanted to make a very nice living. Whenever I went and visited him in his office, he mm -hmm. pointed to the empty office that was going to be my office. 
so I grew up wanting to be a dentist because my dad was a dentist. My dad seemed happy and he was successful. And I said, hey, sounds like a good way to, to live. So I was going to follow in his footsteps. Any brothers or sisters or are you the only child? Um, I, I actually had a brother, uh, but he passed away about 30 years ago. Uh, and so, but we were five years apart, so we weren't really that close, mm-hmm. uh, as more normal siblings might be. Okay. And, and you, you want to be a dentist, you're growing up in New York there. Did, did you play any kind of sports in school or, you know, when you were in high school or, you know, middle school, any kind of sports? Big sports fan, um, love sports. Uh, I was on the varsity baseball team, varsity track team, varsity wrestling team. Um, you know, you had to choose by seasons. Yeah. So track was my fall sport and wrestling was my winter sport and baseball was my spring sport. And, uh, um, and I was a pretty good athlete in, in nice. the day. I was usually a, a starter on uh, wherever I played. Very nice. Same story for me. I, I did soccer in the fall, but I hated running. So then I joined swim team, go figure. And, <laughs> and I wasn't good enough to play basketball. So I stuck with swimming. I asked that question because was there anything uh, in sports that you learned that you sort of carry with you today or were there any kind of things that sports taught you about the business world? The one thing that sports taught me, and there's only one thing in reality because I learned more as I got older. I learned more in college and then I went to a year of law school and uh, uh, was sportsmanship. Mm. And I hated a whining, griping player on the other side. And so I always tried to be uh, the, the mensch, the guy who would suffer defeat um, with honor. And uh, I always admired those people. And that's part of the reason why I love watching golf, mm. because I think it's probably the most honorable sport. Nobody tries to hurt each other, even though they're playing against each other. And you know, we're, we're talking right after the Ryder Cup, which just happened this past weekend. And uh, I think that is – I love sportsmanship. I love uh, – Good behavior. I, 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 that's what I go for. I, I love moderation. I don't like extremes. Yeah. So um, I thought it was uh, uh, the most important lesson I learned really was sportsmanship. Very good. We talked a little bit about your dad being a, a, a dentist. Um, what about your mom? What did your mom do for work? Well, my dad, by the way, was not only a dentist, but he was also the dentist for the New York Jets. So the Jets became a passion of mine, of course, because I went to every Jets game. Oh, there you uh, go. Yeah, so that was fun. My mom was your typical 50s, 60s housewife, had no job. I'm not sure what she did all day because um, I was in school. Uh, but she was, you know, the, 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 the wife. She was the housekeeper. She was the, uh, you know, before women really got into the workplace very much. That she was, her job was bringing her kids up and taking care of the house. Yeah. And, and were there any kind of values that either your mom or dad instilled in you that you still carry with you today and throughout your life? My dad was one of the hardest workers I ever saw in my life. Even after his success, he still worked six days a week. Um, So there's no doubt that my dad instilled my work ethic. Um, And there were some days that we worked seven days a week because we work five days in the office or going to concerts. And then Saturday and Sunday we have concerts. So I've worked 17 straight days in a row. So, uh, um, I think that my dad put my work ethic in, uh, but my mom, I thought, was even more uh, important in my growing up because she was truly one of the nicest people I ever met in my life. 
mm. and was very kind to everybody. And I, you know, I honestly think that uh, uh, my my creed in life is what the Beatles wrote: "The love you take is equal to the love you make." And I think that came from my mother's personality more than anything. Mm, very nice. Yeah, moms are kind of like the, the the superheroes of the world. They really are. Um, okay, so you're growing up in New York, go to high school, you're playing sports, all that stuff. Um, you went to Ohio State for college, correct? Yeah, and there's but, not the- a, but not as a running back. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> but there's the the – the big love of, of sports, right? That's a huge football school, right? Um, what were the college years like there? You went in the 60s, Ohio State. It was great. It yeah. was great. It was Columbus, Ohio. And, it, you know, the, the town of Columbus really is built around Ohio State. And the neighborhood I lived in was the college neighborhood and uh, uh, and the great sports. And as I said, I'm a sports nut. And I... Uh, I actually, my, my first year roommate was the left-handed pitcher on the freshman team. Then they had freshman teams, and then you could only play on the varsity as a sophomore, junior, or senior. They actually had freshman teams. And uh, he had a wicked curveball. He was from Cincinnati, and mm-hmm. I loved to catch him because I had never seen a curveball move the way his curveball moved. So he thought I was a good athlete, and he said, why don't I come out and try out for the team as a walk-on? I said, you know what, I was good in high school. I'm going to try to do that. So I went out one day, and his name was Lenny Thomas. I have no idea where Lenny is today. And he talked the coach into, this is the freshman team, talked the coach into letting me try out. And um, they put a pitcher on the mound. They put me up to bat. And before I could even think about swinging the bat, the ball was by me. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I said, wow, these guys are really much better than my high school players in New Rochelle, New York. This is really (laughs) unbelievable. So uh, they saw giggling. I could feel the giggling, whether they were or not. Then they threw a curveball at me, a righty, and I bailed out of the box, and it was a perfect strike right over the plate. Mm. So, so I put the bat down, and I looked at Lenny, and I said, you know what, Lenny? I'm not as good as these guys from Ohio. I'm just not. <laughs> I can't be on an Ohio State baseball team. Yeah. And I walked off, and that was it. So I ended up playing flag football and, you know, softball instead of hardball in college and still played a lot of sports a lot of golf because they have two great golf courses out there so i still participated but uh, not on a varsity level ohio state was too too high of a level for me yeah i i have an uncle jimmy uh he was a pitcher um probably could have played in college but he just didn't but i i was always terrified of playing catch with him at family picnics just because he could hurl that ball and <laughs> i know what you're saying um how, how, how good some people could be. What kind of student, you know, looking back at your days at Ohio State, what kind of student were you? And I, I asked this because, there, you know, there's, there's students of school and students of life. Um, wh- which one were you back then? I certainly was not a student of school. I would not have gone to Ohio State. I would have gone to an Ivy League school if I was <laughs> a student of school. Um, I was, I hated studying. I hated homework. I wasn't really fond of going to classes. Um, I graduated with a two, three, I still got into law school, but I, uh, did real well on my law boards. That's what got me into law school. But, uh, nonetheless, uh, I was a marginal student at best. I had a lot of fun. I opened my business up in my junior year of college. So I spent a lot of time in my, in my business and, uh, and I probably spent more time in the concert business in college than I did in this job of studying for college. Yeah. And I, 
I definitely want to talk about that. But like, what what did you wanted to be a dentist? But what brought you to Ohio State? And and you were being you were studying law. Did you just have like a change of heart? Said you know what, I'm going to go to law school. I was at Ohio State. I was pre dent. I had taken 37 of the 40 hours of sciences that I needed. Mm. I could not get through organic chemistry. I got through the lab part, but I couldn't get through the classroom part of organic. And I tried once myself and I failed. Second time I hired a teaching assistant to take the course for me. Yeah. Uh, and he got caught. And thankfully I taught myself out of getting suspended or thrown out of school. I tried a third time and I quit halfway through. I, I clearly did not really want to be a dentist. Yeah. So, cause I was smart enough to pass a course, that's for sure. But I just, wasn't allowing myself to do it. So I veered into law because I was, I was coming from a family of professionals. My grand, one grandfather was a lawyer and a doctor. Mm-hmm. My other grandfather was a dentist. My father was a dentist. My father's twin brother was a dentist. Wow. So I came from a family of doctors and lawyers. So being the good son, I felt I had to do that. So I veered into law and I went to a one year of law school. You're at Ohio State. You said you spent more time with your started to spend more time with your concert business than you did in the book business or or the studying business. Um, your first show was in the '60s, Steppenwolf, right? Steppenwolf, November first, nineteen sixty-eight. It was the in the beginning of my junior year of college. So how During, does how does that happen? Are you in like the student union? Are you just doing oh, no. this on the side? I did it on the side. I I, I went to the my my counselor. And I said, I'd like to join this student concert committee because they did about three or four shows a year on campus. And they said, sure, you can join. I said, do I get any sort of break on scholarship or, or do you pay part of my tuition if I bring a concert to you because the school makes money on the concerts? Mm. They said, no. And I left that meeting and I said to myself, then why aren't I doing it for myself? Why should I do it for the school? So I decided to do it for myself. So the summer of 68, uh, me and my friend went to an agency called the William Morris Agency. Yeah. Because that's the only agency I ever heard of, William Morris Agency. And it was, I was lucky, I was 19 years old. And uh, it was a very young business, a concert business at that point. And I uh, walked in and they, I sat down and I had money from my bar mitzvah. My friend had money from his bar mitzvah. We had a total of $5,000. And um, we booked a band called Steppenwolf into. Columbus, Ohio. And back then, rookies were able to get into the business because it was a rookie business. It was concert promoting in 68 was a very new business. So um, I bought my first show. And uh, luckily, the act that I bought had the number one song that week. Uh, So it helped propel my career because I could have been put out of business after my first show. I'm always fascinated by these kinds of stories because like you said, it was a rookie business. It was new. I mean, anybody trying to do this today just couldn't do it, right? You know, you, no. you have relationships with William Morris Agency and, you know, it, it, it would be very, very, very hard for someone to, or impossible for somebody to break into it. Um, I, I really want to know, like, what what was that like booking Steppenwolf and, you know, was it was it a successful show for you? Did it springboard your business? It, it, it springboarded my business in a different manner. It was supposed to be a very successful show. Magic Harper Ride was number one that week. Yeah. And uh, the, but there was a competitor in the market. Uh, the Belkin brothers 
they were out of Cleveland. They did most of the shows in Ohio. Uh, and I never thought about competition. I just thought I'd do the show myself, Steppenwolf, that would be it. So the next day they put the doors in for two shows. And the next day they put Peter, Paul and Mary in, who were very popular at the time, yep. the two shows. So it took what I thought would be a sellout Steppenwolf show, which was 3,000 tickets, down to 1,500 tickets. And I broke even on the show. But it taught me a lesson that competition sucks. Mm. So I called up the Belkin brothers and I said to them, do you guys like coming to Columbus to cover all these shows? I said, I'll take half the risk. I'll cover the show for you and I'll send you half the money. Or you send me half the money if we lose money on the show. And you don't have to come down to Columbus. Their main, their main business was in Cleveland, which was a four-hour, four-and-a-half-hour drive. So they were very into the concept of not having to come to Columbus. So I created a partnership with them. And for the next two years, we were partners in, uh, in concerts in, in Columbus, basically. Then I branched out on my own to do some other cities in Ohio, but never went up to Cleveland. Yeah. How long did you spend in Ohio doing shows? I started in November of 68 and I graduated in June of 71. Uh, I finished doing all my concerts in 71 in Ohio. It was too hard for me to go to law school and run a business in Ohio. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> I, I, it, back then, you had to fly out in the morning to cover a concert and then you couldn't fly out till the next day. So I'd missed two days of law school to cover one concert and uh, I just couldn't do that. Yeah. So I had to make a choice. Which one do I do and which way one do I not do? Yeah. And so you, you spend that time doing the shows in Ohio. Then what? You, you, you end up in Connecticut or do you go back home to New York? I went back home to New York. I, I graduated Ohio State June of 71. I started law school in September of 71. Went to New York law. Um, so I would take the Metro North subway. I'm a, met, excuse me, Metro North train into Grand Central and the subway down to... Uh, law school, which was downtown, Center mm. uh, Street, and I would go to law school till two o'clock, and then I would come up, and I would I had an office in New York, and I'd work from two to six on the concert business, and then I'd leave at six, and I'd get home at seven, I'd eat dinner, and then I'd study at night for law school, Wow! and then start the whole process the next day, 10 to two in law school, and then, and, and then I would go to my office from two to six, and then I would start studying from eight to midnight. Um, to stay in law school, but it was too much of a grind. Mm. Yeah, sounds like burnout can happen really quickly. <laughs> it, it took me about eight or nine months to burn out. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of like the ACDC song lyrics, right? It's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. Um, you know, <laughs> it's not an easy business. Um, I, I've read some previous interviews where you've talked about, you know, in the beginning you were losing money or breaking even. What, what kept you going? Love of music. Yeah, that's simple. I, I, I love music. I listen to music all the time. I still, 72 years old, I go to 10 to 15 concerts a year once the pandemic's over that I sit and watch that are not my shows. Yeah. I still love live performances. But the love of the music and the love of the live performances is what kept me going. Well, I mean, it's a, and it's a dream, right? These are people you listen to on a, a record or CD or whatever, and 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 now you're 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 booking them you're bringing them you're meeting them it's like you're you're involved so i get that that passion for sure um so how did you end up in connecticut well i was doing shows in ohio and um as i said it got harder and harder to do shows in ohio so i was looking for a market near where i lived which was in westchester county 
and I went to uh, the agent that handled the Allman Brothers, a fellow by the name of John Podell, who's still a good friend of mine. And I said, uh, do you have a market anywhere near New York that the Allman Brothers rarely, if ever, play and you don't have any loyalty towards any promoter? And he mentioned Connecticut. Hmm. So I booked the Allman Brothers in November of 71 in Connecticut. So in reality, uh, Johnny gave me the idea of moving my business to Connecticut. It was an open market. It wasn't fully open, uh, but some agencies uh, were looking for promoters. There were some agencies that already had promoters up here. So, So I had to wiggle my way in with certain agencies to get shows. And it started with the Allman Brothers Band. Although that show never happened. I'm sorry, say that again? That show never happened. Dwayne was killed on a motorcycle a few weeks uh, before the show. Yes. Got yeah. Oh, man. When did you hook up with Shelley Finkel? Because I remember being, you know, younger, <laughs> like a teenager and things like that. And I'd hear you guys on, like, HCN and stations like that doing the concert reports and, you know, the two names, you know, Finkel and Koplik or Koplik and Finkel. What, what, when did that all come together? Well, I met Shelley when he was a manager of the band called Hammer. Uh, of course, I had Hammer open up a couple of my shows in Ohio. They opened up a Traffic and Mountain show in Dayton, and they opened up a Grand Funk show in uh, Columbus. And Shelley's a New Yorker, and I'm a New Yorker. And so uh, we sort of got pretty friendly. Uh, and when I uh, graduated college, um, I wanted to, as I said, I wanted to go into Connecticut, uh, and, uh, I saw somebody was bringing Jethro Tull into Connecticut mm. in October of 71. So I said, well, I did Jethro Tull in Columbus. I said, I'm going to go and speak to the manager and see if I can steal the show from this guy. And the next time they play Connecticut, maybe they'll play for me. And I go up to the New Haven arena where the show was, and I'm sitting in the dressing room with Jethro Tull's manager and Ian Anderson and the band and everybody talking, talking with the it in my head that I really would like to uh, uh, be the next guy that plays this act in Connecticut. And Shelly walks into the locker room, which was the dressing room. Yep. I thought, what are you doing here? I said, Hammer's not on this show. And he goes, I'm now a promoter. I said, really, where are you a promoter? He goes, this is my show. I went, oh, really? I said, I didn't know this was your show. I, I said, I'll be honest with you. I, I feel differently now because we're friends, but, uh, I was coming up here to try to have Jethro Tull play for me the next time. So he says, well, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I have the Allman Brothers in the same arena next month. And it was Shelley's idea for us to become partners. He says, instead of fighting each other, why don't you stay in law school, come up to the office between two and six, we'll work together, and then and we'll split everything 50-50. And it was a deal I couldn't turn down. Yeah. He, Loved the idea of me staying in law school. And at the same time, we were splitting our business 50-50, which was, I thought, a wonderful opportunity. Um, but it, it was still for me to – then it became a real business. Connecticut, we started doing 20, 25, 30 shows a year, and it got too much for me to do law school and to do concerts. Yeah. So I said, you know what? I, I chose the concert way to go instead of law schools. How, how long did the partnership with uh, Shelley last? That, that was for quite a while. We started in uh, 1971. Uh, we sold our business uh, to what is now Live Nation in 1997. Yeah. So uh, it was 20-some-odd years, 26 yeah. years we were partners. And we're still close friends, 
brothers. He, I, treat, I, I think of him as my older brother. I see him probably 10, 15 times a year, mm. go out to dinner, bumped into him last week in New York, actually. We were eating at the same restaurant without knowing it, but I went to dinner with him the week before. Uh, so we, we stay still very, very friendly. And what would you say, is there is there like anything Shelly taught you, any kind of something important in this business? Or you guys probably taught each other a lot, but what stands out? He taught me the importance of making a good business deal. I was more into the music, not the business. And I always say there'd be no Jimmy Coplick if there wasn't a Shelly Finkel. Um, he taught me good business. He taught me how, what, what smart deals were, what stupid deals were. He was five years older than me. He is five years older than me. So he had a lot more experience in the business. And without his experience, I never could have gotten where I got. Mm. Yeah, it's always good to have that kind of balance. Or I think that's what always makes great partnerships work, right? You know, you complement each other and, and, and learn from each other. Okay, so um, going to definitely get into some more music talk. But I want to learn a little bit more about what makes you tick as Jim Coplick, the person, the choices, the things, the habits you have. Take us through your daily routine. Are you, I mean, you, <laughs> you have late nights, but are you, are you an early morning person or do you get up when your body tells you to get up? I get up, I get up early in the morning. I usually get up at 6 a.m. and turn on Morning Joe. That's how my day starts. Okay. Uh, um, and, um, but I doze off, so I'm watching and dozing off. Um, usually out of bed between seven thirty and eight o'clock, uh, and I'm usually out of the house on a normal day, non-COVID days, uh, which are now returning. Our office opens up on October fourth, so I'm usually out of the house by nine in my office before ten, and then I spend the day in the office. And now I have two offices: one in Wallingford at Oakdale, and one in Bridgeport at the uh, amphitheater. Yeah, and. Do you have any, apart from Morning Joe, um, do you have any kind of special morning routines? I know like some people, you know, meditate or some people refuse to look at email until they're sitting down with coffee. Is there any other kind of routine you have in the morning? Cup of coffee. There you go. Cup of coffee. That gets me going. I need a cup of coffee. Um, but no, no other routine. I, I'm, I'm really a boring person. I'm sort of bland. Um, I live by myself, so um, there's really nobody to talk to other than my dog, <laughs> and thankfully she doesn't talk back to me, so I never have anybody tell me that I'm stupid and wrong, <laughs> and uh, which I probably am a lot, but nonetheless, I get don't get told it. Uh, and uh, so, no, my routine's very boring, I, and I rarely eat breakfast, so I just head off to the office. There you go. You know, just a funny story. I live with my girlfriend, and... and she did something I didn't really approve of. So I started complaining to the dog about it. And <laughs> she comes over and she's, she comes back down in the kitchen and she says, you know, I heard everything you said that you were muttering while I was up in the bedroom. And I said, well, that was a private conversation between the dog and I. And she goes, oh yeah, well, what did the dog tell you? I go, well, you know, she doesn't talk much, but she's a great listener. <laughs> That's all I want. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're, 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 Pretty much running Live Nation here, you know, in Connecticut. What what would you say? And a, and a, a ton of different venues and, and and shows a year. What what would you say your leadership style is like? Um, open, um, uh, not dictatorial. I, I many times think somebody else is making the right decision. I'll go with them if I I, I like to. I'm very inclusive. 
Mm-hmm. I rarely make decisions myself uh, without other people talking to me about it. I, I what I call my kitchen cabinet, my four who I consider my four or five. We have fifty people in my office, but my four or five people that I think are the smartest people. Mm-hmm. I usually have a meeting with them over lunch, uh, uh, and I talk to them about everything that's coming up, and I listen to their thoughts. And I'm, I'm the one who makes the final decision, but often it's not the decision I thought I would make. So I think I'm very open-minded, I think is probably uh, uh, the way I manage. Very, And I want everybody to be just as open-minded. And and as that type of leader, what would you say is your, your greatest challenge? Oh, uh, uh, managing a know-it-all. Mm. It's very difficult managing a know-it-all. My style does not fit with a know-it-all because I will get in a fight with that person way too often because I won't say that I'm right, but I will always say to them, you're not necessarily right either. And you've got to listen. A know-it-all has one, uh, a one way street into their head. It comes from their brain out of their mouth. No matter what you say, never enters their ears or into the, or their brain. Mm. And I can't stand know-it-alls. Yeah. That's a, that's definitely a challenge for sure. Um, Throughout your career, um, you've done a lot of great shows, but you've also done a lot of great things for the community and so forth. But um, this is a really open-ended question. Is there something that you're super proud of? Like, what's been the most rewarding thing you've done that that's just made you feel really great about what you do? It has nothing to do with music. It, 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 in the year of 2020, I uh, was one of the leading vaccinators in the state of Connecticut. Um, I work with Governor Lamont. Uh, I work with the mayor of Hartford. Uh, I work with the commissioner of economic development and I was able to open up both the Oakdale theater and the Xfinity theater as testing centers and as vaccination centers. Um, I, I, I used my, uh, uh, my, my popularity in the state to push vaccinations. I was on the news a lot. I uh, appeared with the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the mayors of certain towns to try to push it. We did it in Bridgeport also. Uh, opened up Bridgeport as a testing and a vaccination center. And I think I'm most proud of that. I, I think that's, you know, I can't say I'm proud of bringing Marilyn Manson into Connecticut. You know, that's that's a job or, or the Eagles or it could be anybody. That's sure. my job. But what I did in 2020 was over and above my job. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, uh, as the mayor of Hartford said to me uh, on Thursday when we were up at Farm Aid at a press conference, I'm probably the leading private citizen of vac- that gave vaccinations or oversaw vaccinations in the state of Connecticut. And because I have nothing to do with the healthcare industry. So, and I was very proud when he said that. That's amazing. And full disclosure, I got my, vac- uh, my, my COVID vaccine, two of them, uh, Pfizer shots down at the Oakdale. So. Oh, good. Yeah. You didn't even have to call me. I could have snuck you in the line. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it, and, and the team there, ran. everything was just so smooth. I mean, it was funny. When I was pulling in, I felt like I was going to a show. You know, you had, like, the, the parking lot guy telling me where to go, and and it was just great. And I will tell you, um, when I got that first shot, because, you know, 2020 itself was just such a year of uncertainty. So when, I, when the vaccines came out and, and I got that first shot and I – you know, I, when I walked out of the Oakdale, I had this like overwhelming relief of or sense of like joy and relief. Like, OK, we're going to there's a path forward here. Something good's coming from all this. So I really want to say thank you um, 
for stepping up and doing that. I wish there were more people like you who who could use what they have for the betterment of society. So, well, it's funny. I, I understand that totally because I, I I actually got my shot in Bridgeport, uh, but uh, uh, it was before Oakdale opened, and uh, I but I said in one of my press conferences, and it was really true when the governor was there. I said I used to like to stand outside my concert at the end of the show and have everybody walk out talking about how great the concert was with big smiles on their faces. And I said, you know, my job brings joy to people. And, and, and how wonderful is that, that my job brings joy to people. Yeah. But I never saw the joy as much as I saw when people got vaccinated. I said, concert experience paled. And I know I felt the same way. When I got that first shot, I felt like I was let out of jail. Yeah. It was, it was captivating. It was a, a remarkable feeling of relief and, 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 and enjoyment that I felt. And so I used to stand outside Oakdale and watch people leave Oakdale after getting their shots. And everybody had big smiles on their face and felt they did a good deed. And they did a good deed not only for themselves, but also for humanity. So the spread wasn't there because if you get your vaccine, the spread's very unlikely. Uh, this was before Delta. And I think that uh, um, I really, even though I took the year off in 2020, most of the year off from bringing concert enjoyment, I felt I brought vaccine enjoyment to, to the state. So it felt, it was really a wonderful, wonderful feeling doing it. I, I loved doing it, getting it done. Yeah, no, so did I. I mean, taking a selfie and everything else, it was, it was a really special time. So, um, you know, you look at what your career and things you've done on paper and you just have such a successful, um, you know, business and the, the glitz and glamour of the concerts and all that. But I know it's not easy and I'm sure there were lots of bumps in the road or, or failures or, or better yet. I like to call failures like lessons, right? Everybody's like afraid of the F word. It's like, ah, um, this is always sort of a tough question to answer, but tell me about a favorite failure of yours. And what I mean by that is that there was something you failed at. You thought you were so sure it was going to work, but you failed miserably at it. And what was the lesson you learned from that? I tried to put on, in 1983, I tried to put on a Connecticut State Fair. Connecticut doesn't have a state fair. They all go up to the Big E in Western Massachusetts. Yep. And it's a wonderful business. It makes a lot of money. And I said to myself, you know what? I should, I can buy the talent really easily for the fair. I can hire a carnival to be at the fair. I can hire a petting zoo to be at the fair. So I figured this would broaden my business. So I decided I'm going to try doing this. And so I hired a petting zoo. I hired a, uh, a carnival. I brought, we used the Bridgeport Highlight Fronton as our concert venue. We used the parking lot as the fair area. And uh, I had Elvis Costello one night. I had Pat Benatar one night. I had a flock of seagulls one night. We put together a really nice schedule. But at the end of the day, I made no money. I actually lost money on, on the event because mm. I didn't know how to run a fair. My concerts did well, but the fair attendance really, really suffered. And what I realized is I don't know the fair business. It's a different business. I, and the lesson I learned is don't stray from the things you know best because you'll see really how stupid you really are. Mm. I'm smart in one thing. I'm not going to try to be smart in anything else. I found something I'm good at. I'm staying with it. But I learned my lesson. Don't stray too far from your your, your path that you know best. And 
and I thought this was easy money. And I, I, I couldn't get out of bed the day after the fair. I was so depressed. And that's never happened before. And it's never happened since. There you go. As they say, stay in your lane, right? <laughs> well said, yes. Yeah. Staying in your lane is, especially if you're in a good lane. Yes. Stay in it. Yeah, exactly. Um, throughout your career, what has what music taught you? You know, what has rock and roll or music in general taught you? Community. Tribalism. Mm. Nothing better than standing with a whole bunch of other people singing great songs. Uh, with them. And, uh, and that's the one thing that, uh, can't be, uh, uh, put on the internet or, or put in a movie theater or put on a pay-per-view or anything like that. There's nothing like sitting next to your fellow music lover of the same band and singing your songs with them. It's just, you feel like a part of a culture and it's, what it's taught me is how wonderful, how music brings people together. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, you know, that, that's a hundred percent right. I was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day and how, um, you know, there's nothing beats seeing that band or performer or DJ or whoever it is that, that you love and listen to their music and know the lyrics to, to be in the same room as them and see them in, in the flesh and be a part of that experience. Nothing beats it. And then of course, you know, COVID came, disrupted the entire world. You know, I know there were things on like TV and, you know, Internet streams of performances and stuff. And I, I, I suppose that provided a little bit of comfort, but um, didn't have the same feeling. No, not at all. And I and you're right. And I, I watched a lot of those streaming concerts uh, for the artists that I truly loved. And uh, and it's you're sitting by yourself. You're. Yeah, it's it's not the, the, the community feeling of a concert. And that's what makes a lawn so popular uh, at amphitheaters, because that is more community than anything is the lawn. It's very tribal. Yeah. Many times our 18,000 person lawn will sell out before our 6,000 seats up at Xfinity in Hartford. And I marvel at that. Now, yes, the ticket prices are less expensive for sure. But if it's going to rain, you're going to get wet. Yeah. And if the ground's wet and you want to sit down, your tush is going to get wet and you're going to be uncomfortable. And if you don't stand up, you might not see the show because the person in front of you might be standing up and you can't tell them to sit down. But yet it's the more popular part of our venue is the lawn rather than the seats. And that's because you feel that sense of community out on the lawn. I'm going to date myself a little bit. I used to go to some of the shows that were at Lake Compounds. And I tell people Lake Compounds had, had concerts and they look at me like I have three heads. And a show I used to go to, I think he came two or three times, but definitely twice I went, uh, Steve Miller Band. I'd, I'd buy lawn seats because the tickets were whatever at the time, 15, 20 bucks. And my friend and I would go, but we would make more friends out on that lawn, like just that whole community tribalism thing where it was like an adventure. You're going to meet new people. You're going to have a great time. And but new, new, new people that like the same reason for the same reason that you're there. So yep. there's a, there's a, a magical connection right at the beginning. So it's easy to talk to that person. And, and, and music is cultural. If you like Steve Miller, there are probably four or five bands or artists that you like that the person next to you, the stranger next to you also likes. Yeah. Because there is a linkage between certain types of artists and certain types of music. So it, it, it develops friendships. It does develop friendships. Absolutely. So 
here we are. We're coming out of or living in, however we want to look at this. We're we're all experiencing, you know, the challenges of COVID and a post-COVID world. Um, and I know it it, it it had a huge impact in the live music business. Um, what if we go back to March 2020 or even February 2020? What what went through your mind when this was unraveling um, at, at that time? I thought I'd be out of the office for two weeks. Same here. When we closed up on March 13th, um, I thought I, I, I remember saying goodbye to everybody. See you in a couple of weeks. Um, uh, but the problem was uh, the government was downplaying it, mm-hmm. and they took the exact wrong tactic. They were, and I'm not criticizing them. Uh, I'm really not. There were two ways to go: either freak out over what might happen, or try to play it down. And because they tried to play it down, we all took it as as a blip in the radar screen. I think if the governor, if the govern government had played it up, it would have lasted much shorter, and we would have been much more prepared. I remember washing down my food when I would order it from uh, Peapod. I would wash down, literally wash down the food. It was crazy. Me too. But it was a terrible amount of downplaying it and then they upplayed it they made it so big and it was a very very bad response to a problem there was no definitive knowledge and i'm not blaming it on anybody definitive in in particular i'm not uh but i think that we all thought it was just a blip on the screen Uh, i remember in april live nation canceled 12 tours in one day and I was freaking out. We're only four weeks out of the office. We're already canceling summer tours and moving them into 2021. And I was saying this is a lot more serious than everybody's playing it up to be. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 it's, I have the same exact feelings. I'd rather freak out and err on the side of caution with something uh, than, you know, okay, we overreacted and ter- turned out not to be such a big deal. Versus downplaying it and have it, you know, b- become what it what it is. Um, yes, you, you talked a little bit about how Live Nation and your team adapted to to COVID. I mean, certainly utilizing your your venues and so forth as vaccination centers and testing sites and and, and so forth. How else did did your team or, or or company adapt to this? Well, we 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 furloughed a lot of people. Uh, but thankfully we kept everybody's health plan in place. Um, and we, uh, eventually had to let people go. Um, it really changed our, the way we run our business. You know, we're back in full scale right now for the summer. And, uh, we only have about half the number of people working for us mm-hmm. that we had when we were at full scale in 2019. So our jobs have gotten a lot more difficult. Um, and we're all thanking our lucky stars that in about two weeks, the outdoor season's over and things will calm down a little because we're all getting a little afraid working as hard as we are. Uh, but, uh, uh, I think most people understood it being in the concert business. We were most affected, uh, along with the cruise lines and the movie theaters. I think those were really the three businesses that literally had to close down. Uh, some figuratively sort of closed down like the airline business, but still people, some people were flying, Yeah. but we were one of the few industries that actually closed down. 
So when we laid people off, and I had to do some of the laying off in my area in Connecticut and upstate New York, everybody was really understanding and were, were just thankful they were still getting their medical paid for by the company uh, because we were closed. We were not having any events. It wasn't saying, why me and not that person? Because there were no events. There were no concerts. Mm. Um, and I think when we all came back, uh, we really learned to appreciate our jobs even more because we never thought our jobs were fragile. The music business has always been a very, very concert business, has always been a very strong business. We never thought anything could ever put a, a dent in it. And all of a sudden, COVID-19 did. Where do we go from here? What's the future? Well, if you look at, if you look at ticket sales in 2021, the future is very bright for the live industry. Um, we are making as much money as we've ever made before. Uh, we are drawing as many people as we have had before. Uh, and I still think there's some concern over crowds, even though it's outdoors, not indoors, it's outdoors. Uh, I think that the future is even better because there are certain artists, we'll use Neil Young as an example, that won't tour this year because he thinks that concerts could still be super spreaders. He happens to be wrong because there have been thousands of concerts and not one's ever been found to be a super spreader. Yeah. So, but the fact is, if he feels that way, there's quite a number of people that feel that way. So I would expect once this thing is behind us, whether we get the third booster and we feel much more protected, or there's talk about a pill coming out by Pfizer that once you feel a symptom, you take two or three days of these pills and you get rid of it. That's simple. Once we get this a little more under control, which I think we will by 2022, I think the concert business will be better than ever. Yeah. I think there's this huge pent-up demand to get back out there, right? And um, I think you're going to see – you're experiencing it now. So, uh, you know, I I was listening to a podcast with um, Michael Rapino. Um, I'm sure you also know this other name, Bob Lefsetz. <laughs> from the, sure. Yeah. Um, Quite the character, but uh, you know, Connecticut boy. Yes, yes, he talks quite a bit about his time growing up in Fairfield, and you know his mom who just recently passed. Um, but he's a fellow Connecticut boy as well. Um, yep. But you know, for those that don't know Michael Rapino, he he's he's the the head of uh, Live Nation, um, and he shed some light on how the live music business is, is changing. I mean, it was interesting. He talked about. You know, it's no longer tickets on sale and 100% of the tickets are available for $15 or whatever it was. But what I found really interesting that he talked about is particularly like sponsorships and, you know, venue ownership and and exploring other revenue streams, um, which is, you know, shaping um, the live music business. I mean, at the end of the day, it's about the band on the stage. But how, how is the live music industry changing here locally in Connecticut? Well, the, 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 the live concert, I've always wanted to open up a boutique amphitheater in Connecticut, and Bridgeport was our first one. So thankfully now we've got everything in Connecticut. We have a great club at Toad's Place in New Haven. Yep. We have a great theater with Oakdale. We have a great arena with uh, the Mohegan Sun Arena and the XL Center. Uh, we have a great boutique amphitheater in Bridgeport. We have a great uh, uh, large amphitheater up in Hartford with Xfinity. I think we've filled all the buckets that need to be filled now uh, in the state of Connecticut. Uh, so I'm really happy about putting all the pieces together, and essentially they've all been put on uh, put together uh, under my uh, guidance, I should say, rather than my money, because it's Michael Rapino's money. 
not my money that's done a lot of it. And uh, But at the same time, I, I, I think there's always more growth. We're missing a stadium. Our stadium's too small here. Ranch of the Field's only 30,000 seats. I want to try to figure out how to do more shows at a stadium. Uh, but I think the concert business has changed because we, the content, the artists now realizes how strong they are. Mm. They now realize that the people are buying tickets not because of the venue or the promoter. It's because of the artist. So we now have to figure out how to make money other than from tickets. And that's what Michael Rapino has done. I consider myself a founder of the concert business, but of the 20th century concert business. I consider Michael the founder of the 21st century concert business. The 21st concert century concert business is one where you sell a lot of premium seats, you sell a lot of sponsorships, you sell a lot of food and beverage, you charge for parking, and that's how you make your money in the concert business in, in the 21st century. The artists last year took 92% of the gross from Xfinity theater shows. So you've got 8% to pay your expenses for the concert. That doesn't pay for the expenses, 8%. So we have to find more income, more ways to create income streams for us in order to uh, pay the expenses and make a profit. 20th century was very different. 20th century was, you depended on ticket sales. Yeah. And, you know, and it, it just, the content's like baseball. The ball players look what they got paid in the 20th century, look what they get paid in the 21st century. Uh, a, a, a 500 pitcher, uh, and a pitcher who's eight and eight can make six, seven million dollars a year. Mm. And, and that's just because they are the content. They're the, they're, they're the reason that people go into the ballpark. Yeah. It's yep. not because of Yankee Stadium, it's because of the players. So it's the same with us. It's not because of the Oakdale. It's because of who's on stage at Oakdale. So the so the business has changed. We have to make our money on uh, on the side, not hidden, but it's on the side on what you might buy when you come to the concert, what we might charge you when you park. We you'll see boxes, premium seats. You'll see Toyota Oakdale Theater, Xfinity Theater up in Hartford, Hartford Healthcare Amphitheater in Bridgeport. They pay money to put their names on these theaters. They get a lot of goodwill as long as we do a good job. They get a lot of publicity, a lot of PR. Even when they were vaccination centers, their name was getting out there, which was really nice. But that's how we make money. We don't make money from the artists anymore to, to the degree that we used to. It, and, you know, another interesting question, because this is the business I'm in, um, is, you know, marketing, advertising, PR, communications. What's the most successful form of, like, marketing for you guys? Because I know you're, you're not getting, like, you know, a million-dollar advertising budget or, or something like that. I mean, you, you probably rely quite a bit on, on the act coming through to, to help with that. But what's, you know, locally here in Connecticut, what, what's the best form of marketing for you guys or just overall? Social media, mm. Facebook. I mean, I could even define it down to Facebook. Yeah. I mean, uh, we, we spend a lot of money on Facebook, uh, you know, it's extraordinarily popular. You know Instagram, um, but we find that Facebook really is our number one media at this point. It used to be radio, but now it's more more social media than anything else. Yeah, the targeting capabilities for sure. Um, oh, I see it all the time. I mean, I, I I went out to L.A. back in June and I was looking at hotels, and all of a sudden I started getting on my Facebook page all these ads for hotels. Yeah. 
I'm saying, okay, this they targeted me so, looking for a hotel. So now I'm, you know, I, I, I buy clothes on Tucket. All of a sudden on Tucket, it's all over. Mott and Bow, um, all the uh, Bonobos, all these. Now I'm filled with that. Yeah. You know? So I know it works, that's for sure. Yeah. I'm the same way. I look at like a shirt on Untuckit.com and, you know, there's a retail outlet over at West Farms near me. But I'll look at something online and then I'll, I'll get that ad like five minutes later. It's it's, yes. it's it's incredible, and then I'm like, yeah, it really reminds me that I like that shirt. I think I'm gonna go get it. So exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which it's, is at the end of the day, I'm gonna purchase that concert ticket. Same theory, right? <laughs> well, you know what? If you go onto setlist.com and you punch in what was the setlist of Willie Nelson, yeah, uh, Farm Aid, which was last, which was Saturday night for us. We, uh, now I'm getting Willie Nelson. CD ads on my page because I want to see what the what he played, Incredible. how many songs, and now I'm getting Willie Nelson CD ads on my Facebook page when I go on. Yeah, so you're right, it works. It's unbelievable. One thing I experienced through COVID uh, is, you know, and it's sort of strange in a way, um, you know that. We couldn't go out to events, but I found myself diving deeper and deeper into like my music collection. Um, I'm sort of a music geek, um, electronic music guy, but you know, I was pulling out a lot of old albums I have and my father, we went through his collection and you know, I'm rediscovering the album listening experience from start to finish, you know, like Fleetwood Mac or Led Zeppelin, Miles Davis kind of blue. And maybe it was from, yeah, I work from home, but there was this definite slowdown having all this newfound free time on my hands. Um, but I kind of embraced it. Did, did you rediscover anything like during this time with, you know, during the, the slowdown or COVID? Well, I was very much into music also during the slowdown. I made my own playlist to play on Sonos. So I would take my favorite groups and put playlists together. I spent a lot of time doing that. Uh, but what I did rediscover is a love for Frank Sinatra, mm. uh, which I thought was always my father's and mother's music, not my music. And um, and yeah, listen, I, I grew up in the 60s, so Strangers in the Night and My Way were big hit songs for him. But he was always an old guy to me. And I promoted Frank Sinatra. I actually promoted his 75th birthday party at the Brendan Byrne Arena. Um, so I promoted Frank Sinatra, but it was not rock and roll. And he also had a, somewhat of a distaste for rock and roll in the, in the early years, and he openly said it. And so that turned me off from Frank Sinatra. But during the pandemic, I started to listen to Frank Sinatra, and I realized how great Frank Sinatra is. And no, he never wrote a song, mm -hmm. so he's not a writer. He's a stylist. But I would say I listen to Frank Sinatra as much as I listen to any music today. Uh, and pre-pandemic, it was never even a thought. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, okay, I'm sure this is a question, a burning question. I'm sure our listeners want to know, and I, I definitely want to know. Um, I'm sure you could share stories for hours about the crazy lifestyle or moments you've experienced backstage or meeting different performers and bands and who knows, the after parties, whatever. Um, but that's a whole nother show. But I... I want to ask, is is there a story of something funny or crazy that happened throughout your career, whether it be backstage or whatever? Um, is there an, a, any kind of uh, wild, crazy story you could share? 
Well, not really that proud of it looking back, but I was trying to save my business when I did it. Uh, we had Van Halen, Sammy Hagar Van Halen, out in New London, Connecticut. I think it was 1993 or 1994. And um, I remember we were paying them $250,000 for the show. And it was, it was not raining, but there was lightning going on and they were not willing to take the stage. So I went up to the manager and I said to the manager, I'm not paying you unless you take the stage. And it's $250,000. And he takes out the contract and he shows me in the contract that I had forgotten to cross out rain or shine. Uh. He said, I get paid no matter what. So I went, oh, my God, I've got to give everybody their money back if you don't go on stage and I still got to pay you $250,000. I'll be basically out of business if this happens. Mm -hmm. So I go to Eddie Van Halen, who I was friendly with, and he goes, what's with this lightning going on out there? And I said, Eddie, don't worry about a thing. It's heat lightning. Mm -hmm. Heat lightning goes across the sky. It doesn't come down. It's not like rain lightning. He goes, really? I go, yeah, it's heat lightning. Don't worry about a thing. You can get on stage gets the three other guys together. They go on stage. They start playing. The manager comes up to me and says, what the hell are they doing on the stage using different language? What the hell are they doing on stage? I go, I have no idea. I, I just went on stage. After the show, I should have gotten out of there. I didn't. Eddie tells the manager, his name was Ed, what I had told him. And Ed throws me up against the wall and says, if he was killed, I would have killed you. And I looked at him and I said, you wouldn't have known. He would have been dead. You would not have known why he got on that stage. So I played it pretty smart on this one. Oh, man. <laughs> and he said, well, you could have killed my, my guy. I go, listen, I said, I, it, it was really, really hardly lightning out. I had to save my business. What could I do? Now I'm ashamed of it. I have to admit it. I really put Eddie Van Halen's life at risk. But uh, so that's the one story that I... I can't say I regret because he didn't get hit by lightning, so I guess it worked out all right. But that's one story that I uh, probably should uh, keep until <laughs> I go into my grave. Yeah. Well, it's a great story. You know, thanks for sh for sharing that with us for sure. But, um, you know, it, uh, but I think about rock and roll and, you know, a lot of the stuff and the antics that went on backstage backstage just can't happen today because of Instagram and TikTok. You know, we've got these cell phones that will capture everything and you know, um, it, it would share all of the backstage craziness. Um, but I, I can remember going to shows at locally, even here, like right on the ticket, you know, no cameras, right? It, it, and that was probably, I, I get it to, to combat the, the bootleggers and, and the people who would videotape a show and sell them. But, you know, now everybody's got um, these cell phones. And, you know, I, I went to Tool, um, I think it was in 2019 at Mohegan Sun and Man, they were militant. They're like, if you, the, the band itself said, if you have any of your cameras on, we're going to toss you out of here. And I saw somebody get ejected from the show because they were recording. But, I mean, what do you think of that now? Is it good or bad? Does it does it matter nowadays? Maybe it helps in some sense to... I think it helps. I think it's a good idea all the way around. I, I believe that helps an artist. Uh, the Grateful Dead have used it to a per, to perfection. They let people tape their shows. Yeah. It perpetuates the band. It perpetuates their popularity. In my opinion, they were pioneers of that stuff, like capturing, letting people come in and hook their mics right into the soundboard, and you know the the 
aftermarket trading, you know, people trading the tapes, and it was just such a promotional tool that was like a social media. It was social media before social media. The technology wasn't there, but these guys were doing it with with cassettes and everything, letting fans tape the shows. Yeah, it created a Grateful Dead community. And if you want to hold on to your fans best, make them a community. And I, I think that every artist should allow taping. Yeah. They're going to buy a ticket anyway the next time around. What's the difference? Exactly. Okay. If you could give your 22-year-old self or 18-year-old self, whatever it is, um, some advice, knowing what you know today, what would it be? Wow. Um I think what I, w- what I would say is um, um, go with your gut. Don't overthink anything. Usually your gut is right. And I find when people overthink things, they talk themselves out of something rather than into something. And I believe in gut. Okay. And final question. Um, there's a podcast I listened to on NPR by Guy Raz um, called uh, How I Built This. And I really enjoy um, his, his question. I think it's a brilliant question, so I'm going to borrow it or steal it here. How much of your success has been pure luck, and how much is it from your sheer brilliance? I, I would say that um, 75 to 80% is pure luck. Um, I got into the concert business at its beginnings. Um, the podcast started off with you saying, correctly. I can't imagine a single guy like me trying to get into a concert business now. When I got in the concert business, my first act cost $3,500. That's our, not even our catering budget backstage anymore. Forget what the artists get paid. We, we pay bands millions of dollars a night. I don't see how a newbie can, can do that. Hmm. So, um, uh, I, I think that, uh, uh, what, what I would, um, um, essentially say was that uh, um, I, by getting in at an early stage, I was able to parlay very little money into a big business. Uh, but then I would say staying in the business as long has to do with me and, and, and also being somewhat visionary. I was the second company bought by what was then SFX, now Live Nation. I knew big business was going to take us over. I felt it. Um, there were a lot of promoters that didn't see that. There were a lot of promoters that are still suffering because they're the little guys playing with the big guys. And there were four or five really big companies, Live Nation being one of them. But the little guys would have trouble going up against the big guys these days. Um, so th- th- I give myself the 20% by being a hard worker and being uh, uh, smart enough to stay in my own lane in Connecticut and upstate New York and never branch out to other markets and weaken myself. And at the same time, seeing the future being that uh, uh, to be with a big company rather than a smaller company because the business got so much bigger. And I give myself credit for that also. That's a, I, I feel that's a great place to, to leave um, off. Any, any fi- final words or anything you'd like to, to say before we uh, close? Just that I'm 72 years old, and I uh, I still do it because I love it. And uh, uh, during the pandemic, I realized that my hobby is my work because I didn't take really anything else up. I didn't start reading, which I don't read much. 
I read magazines, but not books. I said, oh, I'm going to read books. I bought the Robert Iger book and read it and stopped after that. So I never did that. I play golf, but I don't love golf. So that didn't become something I want to do. I realized what I want to do is I want to be a concert promoter. I probably do it probably for the rest of my life is my guess. Well, thank you for doing that. And because I, I love coming to your shows and I just want to thank you for being uh, a guest here on upfront and sharing a little bit of your story. And there's, there's so much more um, to tell. So maybe we'll do a part two of this in the future, but um, for people who want to get more information on the shows and all about your business, Live Nation Connecticut, correct? That is correct. Thanks so much, Jim. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Really enjoyable. Thank you. And there we have it. That's Jim Koplick from Live Nation, Connecticut. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I don't know about you, but I am ready to get some tickets and head out to a show. Now, for all of the concert listings, the best place to go is Google. You can search for Live Nation, Connecticut, and the listings of all the shows will come up for you. But if you'd like to visit the venues, you can check them out at HartfordHealthCareAmp.com. And that's for the Hartford Healthcare Amphitheater, Oakdale.com for the Toyota Oakdale Theater, and Hartford Theater, that's with an E at the end, for the Xfinity Theater, and of course, LiveNation.com for all the shows happening here in Connecticut. Upfront is brought to you by Mason, an integrated brand communications firm located in Southern Connecticut that provides communications ingenuity through advertising, public relations, social media, digital, and media services. To learn more, visit mason23.com, and you can also get in touch by sending us an email, hello at mason23.com. This show was produced, engineered, researched, and designed with help and assistance from TJ Tower and Neil Johnson. That's all I've got for this month. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you again soon. Take care.